Uh, This morning's passage is from uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. That can be found in the church Bibles on page 977. That's Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is uh, God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Andrew, thank you very much for reading. Please do keep your Bibles open there. Matthew chapter 5, page 977. And let me lead us in prayer again as we begin. Some words from James 3. We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Father God, I pray that what comes out of my mouth would be true and faithful and clear. Would it be used by you for building us up, causing us to look to Christ, to flee to him, and be strengthened by your grace to live for him and more like him. In his name and for your glory we pray. Amen. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, isn't that just what you want to hear, having managed to drag yourself, possibly your screaming kids, all the way to church on a Sunday morning? Perhaps it's what you want to tell your children, unless you're even better than the best of the best, well, you have no chance of getting into the kingdom of heaven, so stop biting your sister and start eating your Weetabix. But is that what Jesus is saying here? Is that what the Sermon on the Mount is all about? Certainly it's how lots of people read it. It's how many think of Christianity, which then becomes little more than pull-your-socks-up religion. But if we've been here over recent weeks, we'll have picked up these aren't rules to get into the kingdom of heaven. No, rather they are what characterize citizens of Jesus' kingdom. So back in verse 1, you see Jesus is teaching his disciples, his followers. But we've also got the crowds listening in. So this sermon encourages 
but it also exposes. It intrigues. It invites us to follow Jesus and become part of his kingdom and then to know what it looks like to live as part of his kingdom. And now we're at a watershed moment in the sermon. In verses 17 to 20, Jesus outlines how he relates to the Old Testament. And then from verse 21 onwards, we get six lines of application. Six times Jesus says, it was said, and each time he shows how his loyal subjects should live, how the Lord truly applies. But I say to you, and we get six case studies, six examples, six ways the rubber hits the road as Jesus takes the Old Testament law and rather than relaxing it, he, he rigorously reapplies it to those in his kingdom. So let's turn to verses 17 to 20 uh, for the final part of the foundation Jesus lays. As firstly, we see King Jesus fully fulfills the whole Old Testament. If you've got the outline, You'll see that's our first point this morning. King Jesus fully fulfills the whole Old Testament. All the law and the prophets, in other words, the whole Old Testament, points to Jesus. What Jesus says here is like tectonic plates shifting, sending ripples around the globe. What Jesus is claiming is utterly staggering. Look at verse 17 with me. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And to make sure there's no confusion, Jesus spells it out for us. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He's not come to get rid of any of the law and the prophets, but to fulfill all of them. So there's something new and something not new going on at the same time. Jesus hasn't come to get rid of the Old Testament. The, the law and the prophets which reveal God's perfect character and standards. Which point to the coming Christ. Which expose our inability to save ourselves. Still stand. But, and you probably sensed there was a but coming. We can't make sense of the Old Testament without Jesus. Because it is all about him. He fulfills it all. Like the rays of the sun being concentrated by a magnifying glass onto one spot. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament by filling full the Old Testament. All the predictions, all the patterns, all the prophecies, focusing in on him, finding their goal in him. I wonder if Alexander Graham Bell back in 1876 could have imagined the modern day smartphone. It is in a sense filling full the potential of that first phone. But it doesn't quite work, does it? Because there's always some new phone coming out in the next few months, if not weeks. And though Jesus is the goal, the, the end of the line for the law and the prophets. It's more like a train heading to a station or an engaged couple reaching their wedding day or a, a student getting their degree. Or perhaps here's one for Craig. Maybe it's like a, a composer jotting down a melody and then they later turn it into a symphony. Uh, the melody's not done away with, but it's, it's become what it was always heading for. And actually, haven't we already seen in Matthew's Gospel how the law and the prophets... Look forward to Jesus. So in chapter 2, Matthew picks up Micah 5 and Bethlehem being the place of Jesus' birth. A few verses later, he quotes Hosea 11, out of Egypt I called my son as being fulfilled through Jesus. He then turns to Jeremiah 31, Isaiah 40, and so on. It's why Jesus' followers follow in the footsteps of the prophets. Verse 12, did we notice that? We're persecuted like them. 
That's why Jesus can say in Matthew 11 that all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. The new has arrived, or rather the fulfillment has arrived. And doesn't this help us read our, our Bibles, both Old Testaments and New? We can only make sense of the Old Testament through Jesus, and we'll miss out on fully understanding Jesus if we ignore the Old Testament. Now, but Jesus isn't saying this just so we know how to read our Bibles. He's telling us so we know he has the authority to tell his people how to live. One writer puts it like this. Jesus came not to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it in the sense that he himself was the object towards which it pointed. Therefore, it is the height of folly not to listen to his commands, the commands of the kingdom. In chapter 15, Jesus declares all foods clean. We don't obey Old Testament laws in exactly the same way. We don't have to kill animals in the temple. We can wear clothes woven of two different threads and so on. We're no longer under the law, but we're not lawless. No, we're following the whole Old Testament as fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus reapplies God's law to his followers in a more radical way. That's why Jesus says the unsettling words of verses 19 and 20. Because he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, therefore, verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What a hammer blow. Perhaps we were beginning to think, well, uh, since the whole Old Testament's been fulfilled in Jesus, well, it doesn't apply to me anymore. It doesn't really matter how I live. But just as Jesus' life, death, resurrection and return fulfill the law and the prophets, so does his teaching. So secondly, this morning, Jesus' subjects are to follow fully. Jesus' subjects are to follow fully. There's no taking our foot off the pedal. As a friend of mine used to say, it's not jacuzzi Christianity. What is the standard Jesus sets? It is a righteousness that surpasses the creme de la creme of the religious elite. He'll go on to say at the end of chapter 5, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is infinitely harder than telling me to go and run the 100 metres quicker than Usain Bolt or hit a cricket ball as sweetly as Joe Root. Far harder than telling me to, to bake like Mary Berry or paint like Picasso. Is this an impossibly high standard? Well, yes and no. Is Jesus just saying, try harder, as if we could ever be perfect? When we read the Beatitudes, verses uh, 1 to 12, how do we react? Often we think, well, I must be like that, as if there's standards we need to match up to. And we change the for into a therefore, but they're not rewards. It's showing us what the overflowing grace of God will do in us and for us. They are the beatitudes, not the do-attitudes. They flow from who we are in Christ, who we are as members of his kingdom, not a list of demands. So yes, verse 20, it does expose us. None of us can achieve it on our own. 
but we're not left exposed. I just love how this chapter, chapter 5, begins and ends. There's a, a circular logic, maybe we can see it on the screen, a circular logic going on here. As Martin Luther famously said, the purpose of the sermon is to teach us to crawl to Christ. And I think he's half right. Uh, We need to see our poverty and weakness and turn to our shepherd king. It's why the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. That's how Jesus begins. Those who recognize they don't have anything going for them before God. The sermon begins with encouragement because when we come to God empty-handed in faith, he gives us Christ's righteousness. A righteousness far higher than the scribes and Pharisees' righteousness. That we're shown up as not having a sufficient righteousness of our own. We're forced to the cross to receive a righteousness not our own. Jesus gives us his. God credits it to us. Jesus' perfect track record given to his followers. He perfectly kept the law in my place. He satisfies the demands of the law in his perfect life, in his obedient death. He has fulfilled the law, all the law, on our behalf. And so gains us entry into the kingdom of heaven. So the appeal is to come to him for righteousness. But it doesn't end there though. As members of Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, we are expected to live like it. We can actually live righteous lives now. We can actually live out a righteousness higher than the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus exhorts and equips us to live like him. He continues to fulfill the law as he reveals the law's true meaning to us. He keeps on fulfilling the law as he acts as our great high priest and as he, by the Holy Spirit, writes the law upon our hearts, giving us the strength to live in obedience to it. You see, we can now live more righteously than the scribes and Pharisees because we live out a righteousness from the heart. Remember, this is who we are, not what we're striving for. You are the salt of the earth, not try to be. You are the light of the world, not just on your good days. It is an objective reality. And so we resolve each day by God's grace and in his strength to live for Jesus. These examples, these case studies Jesus gives, they're not merely theoretical. They're not just exposing us, though they do. They're also showing us the way to go. Like coming to a a flame or a a bright light on a dark night. It's encouraging, it's a, a reassurance, it's comforting. But then we can also find ourselves exposed. We see the state we're in, our desperate plight. But then the flame is also enlightening. Jesus' teaching shows us up and it shows us the way. We're encouraged, equipped, exposed, but then further encouraged. We know we don't live like Jesus as much as we want to or as we should. We're not yet perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. But as we're exposed, we go back to the cross. We're reminded we get right with God, not by what we do, but by what Christ has done. But getting right with God means getting right with others remember Jesus isn't lowering the standards of the law no in fact he raises the bar the beatitudes set the tone in answering the question where is the good life to be found the answer is it's in entering the kingdom of heaven but then comes the question if that is the good life 
What does it look like? How should citizens of this heavenly kingdom live? Well, the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. So therefore, the the only conclusion is to listen to him. And particularly here, listen to him and obey him with our temper. That's our final point this morning, or, or case study number one, murder or anger. If verses 1 to 20 are the foundation, then as I said from verse 21, we get the, the outworking, the application. So this week we're going to look at case study number 1, at next week numbers 2 and 3, the week after at 4 to 6, that's the plan. But it's no coincidence, the first thing Jesus turns to is our anger. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus goes for one of the most well-known commands, the sixth of the Ten Commandments, do not murder. And he moves from a minimalist interpretation to show us the full meaning of the law. It's a bit like Jesus is the the hand filling the glove puppet, animating it, bringing it to life. Apart from Jesus, the law is powerless to save. But here, Jesus uses the law to bring us to him and then live for him. Jesus fills the command full. He's not abolishing the law. He is fulfilling it, applying it more radically. And unsurprisingly, his standard remains impeccably high. I mean, who here hasn't thought or muttered, you idiot, as someone cuts us up on the motorway or someone doesn't keep their word, lets us down? Uh, Maybe it's just me, but don't we often get angry when we we don't get our own way, even with those we love the most? My boss has some go at me again over some tiny issue. My children don't do what I say. My spouse seems deliberately to not understand me. Rarely a day goes by when we don't get irked, irritated, and angered by those around us. And Jesus says, despising a brother or sister imperils our soul. The judgment that hangs over the murderer hangs over us too. We deserve hell. And so often we we look sideways at those who have a shorter fuse than us. And Jesus is going to expose the danger in chapter 7 of looking at specks in other people's eyes while we neglect the log in our own. The first person I need to apply this to is always myself. You see, there should be no cheap grace here, as if it doesn't really matter how I live, or thinking Jesus is just my ticket into heaven. Yes, he is my saviour, but he's also my Lord. There is just that danger of thinking following Jesus is an easy ride. And we need to remember, although we don't get into the kingdom of heaven by what we do, it is all of Jesus. Once we're in the kingdom of heaven, it does involve radical discipleship. Jesus' yoke is easy, but it's still a yoke. So it's not okay to say, well, I just have a a short fuse. It's just the way I am. Sure, some of us are more naturally patient than others, but a volatile temper, a lack of self-control is incompatible with being in Jesus' kingdom. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. No, they can hurt me. My words expose my heart and show that outside of Christ I deserve hell. In fact, Jesus 
highlights quite how serious it is with a couple of examples in verses 23 to 26. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. Both examples have the same point, the, the utter urgency of settling a disagreement or argument. The so of verse 23 highlights the motivation. Since the sin of anger deserves hell, so therefore we will urgently seek reconciliation. Jesus says, look, if you've, um, you've opened up your checkbook and you're about to, to hand over a huge amount to help with gospel work, but you, you just remember you've wronged someone at church and you haven't reconciled with them, then stop. Before you sign the check, go and apologize. Sort it out with them. Jesus isn't changing the Old Testament law. He's showing us where it was always heading, what it was always intended for. There will never be a, a sinless church this side of glory, but it's not an excuse for sin. We should be a church where we're so quick to pursue reconciliation. Maybe even now, right now, you're aware of someone in St. John's with whom you need to sort things out. Well, don't delay. Straight after our service, make a beeline for them. It is that urgent, says Jesus. Unchecked, unresolved anger has no place in the life of the Christian. Now, it's important to remember, not all outward expressions of anger are wrong. Jesus got angry in the temple. He called the Pharisees blind fools. But his anger burned at sin, at at people standing in opposition to God. Our anger almost always stems from when we feel slighted or wronged, at at offence to ourselves. Very rarely am I angered when God is offended. But Jesus shows us how citizens of his kingdom will live. The Bible is clear he is both saviour and lord. The one who rescues and who rules. My whole life is now to revolve around him. We can't come to Jesus as our Lord if we haven't received him as our saviour. But if we're trusting him as our saviour, then we will live with him as our Lord. And we need to remember all of this comes off the back of verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Losing our temper isn't just a serious sin. It also hampers our evangelistic efforts. It it works against making Jesus Christ known. Being self-controlled like Jesus should make people sit up and listen as we talk of Jesus. But also the opposite will be true. This is part of what it means to be fishers of men. It's what Jesus called his followers to be, chapter 4. Sin doesn't just damage us, it damages those around us. It doesn't just warrant hell, it also encourages others to keep heading to hell. Now we must be clear again in our own thinking, this is how true citizens of God's kingdom live, how those who've been brought under Jesus' rule, this isn't how we live to get in. But true righteousness, both a right standing with God and real inner goodness, will be shown in how we control our anger 
in how we seek reconciliation if we've lost it. And actually, since having this attitude can only come from having a new heart, our righteousness really does exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees who didn't have God's Spirit strengthening them. So this coming week, I don't know what you've got in store. Maybe you've got some things in the diary. How are we going to respond? Will we listen to Jesus as the one who has every right to tell us what to do? Christians have a different set of values. Jesus is offering a changed heart, a new attitude. And it only comes through a relationship with him, through receiving his righteousness. The Christian life is not one of grim rule-keeping but grace-fueled, loving obedience. It is not guilt, but gospel. Perhaps, you know, you've yet to come to Jesus for that righteousness. You're not yet a part of the kingdom of heaven. Well, if that's you, please don't delay. A reconciliation with one another is important. It is as nothing compared to our reconciliation with God. Outside of Christ, we still face the reality of hell and the impossibly high standard of entering the kingdom of heaven. But in Christ, we have his righteousness. He has fulfilled all the law and the prophets through his life, through his teaching, through his death and resurrection. We're brought into the kingdom of heaven and then we're strengthened to live like it. And if that is already true of us, then won't we be wanting to live radically differently like Jesus? Perhaps we already know who we're going to be tempted to get angry with this week. Well, let's pray God would remind us of the seriousness of sin and strengthen us to fight it. Let's not justify losing our temper as if it's ever acceptable. Even the muttered insult is as dangerous as murder. And if we do fall into sin and get angry, let's be super quick in seeking to settle the matter with those we've wronged. Ask them for forgiveness. Supremely ask God for forgiveness. Confident those who mourn their sin will be comforted. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. And as we close, here are two questions I'm going to start trying to ask myself, and you might want to ask them to yourself too. Firstly, how did you respond the last time God exposed sin in your life? If you've never had God expose sin in your life, it means you're not yet a Christian. But as God does expose sin in our life, what do we do? Perhaps instead of running to the cross, did we feel bad for a bit? Then carry on just as before, perhaps with a little more determination not to do it again. Or maybe we felt guilty, condemned, and we felt we couldn't possibly ask for forgiveness, not once again. And we remained in that feeling of despair. Denial and despair are common responses to sin. They're all too often present in my own life, but they shouldn't be. No, we must run to Jesus for forgiveness but also for the strength to be changed and live more like him. And then the second question, what was the last practical step I took to turn from sin and turn to Jesus? The decision to ditch a smartphone or social media if it makes me angry. Praying before I get behind the steering wheel in the car. The daily commitment to refuse to retaliate to that family member who's just so antagonistic. Following Jesus is what we were created for, what every single one of us was created for. It is the most important pursuit, knowing him, living more like him, making him known. 
So as we close now, let's pray by God's grace we would be living out who he has made us in Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus says later in Matthew's Gospel, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Gracious, loving, heavenly Father, we thank you for these words we've been looking at this morning. Thank you that your standards reflect your perfection. And as those who cannot achieve the requirements of the law, far less the true fulfillment of the law in Jesus' words, we thank you for his righteousness that can be ours through his death. Thank you that because of Jesus and only because of him, we can be in your kingdom. Please help us to recognize that, to accept that. And then to live as one of Jesus' people, fleeing unrighteous anger, pursuing reconciliation, and recognizing the seriousness of sin. We ask it in Jesus' name and all for your glory. Amen.